The Kreutzer Sonata by Leo Tolstoy Chapter 8 Well, and now it so chanced that everything combined, my condition, her becoming dress, and the satisfactory boding. It had failed twenty times, but now it succeeded. Just like a trap. I am not joking. You see, nowadays marriages are arranged that way, like traps. What is the natural way? The lass is ripe. She must be given in marriage. It seems very simple if the girl is not a fright, and there are men wanting to marry. That is how it was done in olden times. The lass was grown up, and her parents arranged the marriage. So it was done, and is done, among all mankind. Chinese, Hindus, Mohammedans, and among our own working classes. So it is done among at least 99% of the human race. Only among 1% or less, among us libertines, has it been discovered that that is not right, and something new has been invented. And what is this novelty? It is that the maidens sit around, and the men walk about, as at a bazaar, choosing. And the maidens wait and think, but dare not say, Me, please, no me, not her, but me. Look what shoulders and other things I have. And we men stroll around and look, and are very pleased. Yes, I know, I won't be caught. They stroll about and look, and are very pleased that everything is arranged like that for them. And then, in an unguarded moment, snap, he is caught. Then how ought it to be done, I asked. Should the woman propose? Oh, I don't know how. Only if there's to be equality, let it be equality. If they have discovered that prearranged matches are degrading, why this is a thousand times worse. Then the rights and chances were equal. But here the woman is a slave in a bazaar, or the bait in a trap. Tell any mother, or the girl herself, the truth, that she is only occupied in catching a husband? Oh, dear, what an insult! Yet they all do it, and have nothing else to do. What is so terrible is to see sometimes quite innocent poor young girls engaged on it. And again, if it were but done openly, but it is always done deceitfully. Ah, the origin of species, how interesting! Oh, Lily takes such an interest in painting. And will you be going to the exhibition? How instructive! And the troika drives and shows and symphonies. Oh, how remarkable! My Lily is mad on music. And why don't you share these convictions? And boating. But their one thought is, Take me, take me, take my Lily. Or try, at least... Oh, what an abomination! What falsehood! he concluded, finishing his tea and beginning to put away the tea things. Chapter 9 You know, he began, while packing the tea and sugar into his bag, the domination of women from which the world suffers all arises from this. What domination of women? I asked. The rights, the legal privileges, are on the man's side. Yes, yes, that's just it, he interrupted me. That's just what I want to say. 
It explains the extraordinary phenomenon that on the one hand woman is reduced to the lowest stage of humiliation, while on the other she dominates. Just like the Jews, as they pay us back for their oppression by a financial domination, so it is with women. Ah, you want us to be traitors only. All right, as traitors we will dominate you, say the Jews. Ah, you want us to be merely objects of sensuality. All right, as objects of sensuality, we will enslave you, say the women. Woman's lack of rights arises not from the fact that she must not vote or be a judge. To be occupied with such affairs is no privilege. But from the fact that she is not man's equal in sexual intercourse, and has not the right to use a man or abstain from him as she likes— is not allowed to choose a man at her pleasure instead of being chosen by him. You say that is monstrous. Very well. Then a man must not have those rights either. As it is at present, a woman is deprived of that right while a man has it. And to make up for that right, she acts on man's sensuality, and through his sensuality subdues him so that he only chooses formally, while in reality... It is she who chooses. And once she has obtained these means, she abuses them and acquires a terrible power over people. But where is this special power? I inquired. Where is it? Why, everywhere, in everything. Go round the shops in any big town. There are goods worth millions, and you cannot estimate the human labor expended on them. And look whether in nine-tenths of these shops there is anything for the use of men. All the luxuries of life are demanded and maintained by women. Count all the factories. An enormous proportion of them produce useless ornaments, carriages, furniture, and trinkets for women. Millions of people, generations of slaves, perish at hard labor in factories merely to satisfy women's caprice. Women, like queens, keep nine-tenths of mankind in bondage to heavy labor. And all because they have been abased and deprived of equal rights with men. And they revenge themselves by acting on our sensuality and catch us in their nets. Yes, it all comes of that. Women have made of themselves such an instrument for acting upon our sensuality that a man cannot quietly consort with a woman. As soon as a man approaches a woman, he succumbs to her stupefying influence and becomes intoxicated and crazy. I used formerly to feel uncomfortable and uneasy when I saw a lady dressed up for a ball, but now I am simply frightened and plainly see her as something dangerous and illicit. I want to call a policeman and ask for protection from the peril and demand that the dangerous object be removed and put away. "'Ah, you are laughing,' he shouted at me. "'But it is not at all a joke. "'I am sure a time will come, and perhaps very soon, "'when people will understand this "'and will wonder how a society could exist "'in which actions were permitted "'which so disturb social tranquility "'as those adornments of the body "'directly evoking sensuality "'which we tolerate for women in our society.' Why, it's like setting all sorts of traps along the paths and promenades. It is even worse. Why is gambling forbidden, 
while women in costumes which evoke sensuality are not forbidden. They are a thousand times more dangerous. Chapter 10 Well, you see, I was caught that way. I was what is called in love. I not only imagined her to be the height of perfection, but during the time of our engagement, I regarded myself also as the height of perfection. You know there is no rascal who cannot, if he tries, find rascals in some respects worse than himself, and who consequently cannot find reasons for pride and self-satisfaction. So it was with me. I was not marrying for money. Covetousness had nothing to do with it, unlike the majority of my acquaintances who married for money or connections. I was rich. She was poor. That was one thing. Another thing I prided myself on was that while others married, intending to continue in future the same polygamous life they had lived before marriage, I was firmly resolved to be monogamous after marriage, and there was no limit to my pride on that score. Yes, I was a dreadful pig and imagined myself to be an angel. Our engagement did not last long. I cannot now think of that time without shame. What nastiness! Love is supposed to be spiritual and not sensual. Well, if the love is spiritual, a spiritual communion, then that spiritual communion should find expression in words, in conversations, in discourse. There was nothing of the kind. It used to be dreadfully difficult to talk when we were left alone. It was the labor of Sisyphus. As soon as we thought of something to say and said it, we had again to be silent, devising something else. There was nothing to talk about. All that could be said about the life that awaited us, our arrangements and plans, had been said. And what was there more? Now if we had been animals, we should have known that speech was unnecessary. But here, on the contrary, it was necessary to speak, and there was nothing to say because we were not occupied with what finds vent in speech. And moreover, there was that ridiculous custom of giving sweets, of coarse gourmandizing on sweets, and all those abominable preparations for the wedding. Remarks about the house, the bedroom, beds, wraps, dressing gowns, underclothing, costumes. You must remember that if one married according to the injunctions of Damastroy, as that old fellow was saying, then the feather beds, the trousseau, and the bedstead are all but details appropriate to the sacrament. But among us, one of ten who marry, there are certainly nine who not only do not believe in the sacrament, but do not even believe that what they are doing entails certain obligations, where scarcely one man out of a hundred has not been married before, and of fifty, scarcely one is not preparing in advance to be unfaithful to his wife at every convenient opportunity. When the majority regard the going to church as only a special condition for obtaining possession of a certain woman, think what a dreadful significance all these details acquire. They show that the whole business is only that. They show that it is a kind of sale— an innocent girl is sold to a profligate, and the sale is accompanied by certain formalities. Chapter 11 That is how everybody marries, 
and that is how I married, and the much-vaunted honeymoon began. Why, its very name is vile, he hissed viciously. In Paris, I once went to see the sights, and noticing a bearded woman and a water-dog on a signboard, I entered the show. It turned out to be nothing but a man in a woman's low-necked dress, and a dog done up in walrus skin and swimming in a bath. It was very far from being interesting. But as I was leaving, the showman politely saw me out, and, addressing the public at the entrance, pointed to me and said, "'Ask the gentleman whether it is not worth seeing. "'Come in, come in, one franc apiece.' "'I felt ashamed to say it was not worth seeing, "'and the showman had probably counted on that. "'It must be the same with those who have experienced "'the abomination of a honeymoon, "'and who do not disillusion others. "'Neither did I disillusion anyone, "'but I do not now see why I should not tell the truth. "'Indeed, I think it needful to tell the truth about it. One felt awkward, ashamed, repelled, sorry, and above all, dull, intolerably dull. It was something like what I felt when I learned to smoke, when I felt sick and the saliva gathered in my mouth and I swallowed it and pretended that it was very pleasant. Pleasure from smoking, just as from that, if it comes at all, comes later. The husband must cultivate that vice in his wife in order to derive pleasure from it. Why vice, I said. You are speaking of the most natural human functions. Natural, he said. Natural? No, I may tell you that I have come to the conclusion that it is, on the contrary, unnatural. Yes, quite unnatural. Ask a child. Ask an unperverted girl. Natural, you say. It is natural to eat. And to eat is, from the very beginning, enjoyable, easy, pleasant, and not shameful. But this is horrid, shameful, and painful. No, it is unnatural. And an unspoilt girl, as I have convinced myself, always hates it. But how, I asked, would the human race continue? Yes, would not the human race perish, he said, irritably and ironically, as if he had expected this familiar and insincere objection. Teach abstention from childbearing, so that English lords may always gorge themselves. That is all right. Preach it for the sake of greater pleasure— that is all right. But just hint at abstention from childbearing in the name of morality, and my goodness, what a rumpus! Isn't there a danger that the human race may die out because they want to cease to be swine? But forgive me, this light is unpleasant. May I shade it? he said, pointing to the lamp. I said I did not mind, and with the haste with which he did everything, he got up on the seat and drew the woolen shade over the lamp. All the same, I said, if everyone thought this the right thing to do, the human race would cease to exist. He did not reply at once. You ask how the human race will continue to exist, he said, having again sat down in front of me, and spreading his legs far apart, he leaned his elbows on his knees. 
why should it continue? Why, if not, we should not exist? And why should we exist? Why, in order to live, of course. But why live? If life has no aim, if life is given us for life's sake, there is no reason for living. And if it is so, then the Schopenhauers, the Hartmans, and all the Buddhists as well are quite right. But if life has an aim, it is clear that it ought to come to an end when that aim is reached. And so it turns out, he said with noticeable agitation, evidently prizing his thought very highly. So it turns out, just think, if the aim of humanity is goodness, righteousness, love, call it what you will, if it is what the prophets have said, that all mankind should be united together in love, that the spears should be beaten into pruning hooks, and so forth, what is it that hinders the attainment of this aim? The passions hinder it. Of all the passions, the strongest, cruelest, and most stubborn is the sex passion, physical love. And therefore, if the passions are destroyed, including the strongest of them, physical love, the prophecies will be fulfilled, mankind will be brought into a unity, the aim of human existence will be attained, and there will be nothing further to live for. As long as mankind exists, the ideal is before it, and of course not the rabbit's and pig's ideal of breeding as fast as possible, nor that of monkeys or Parisians to enjoy sex passion in the most refined manner, but the ideal of goodness attained by continence and purity. Towards that, people have always striven and still strive. You see what follows. It follows that physical love is a safety valve. If the present generation has not attained its aim, it has not done so because of its passions, of which the sex passion is the strongest. And if the sex passion endures, there will be a new generation, and consequently the possibility of attaining the aim in the next generation. If the next one does not attain it, then the next after that may, and so on, till the aim is attained, the prophecies fulfilled, and mankind attains unity. If not, what would result? If one admits that God created men for the attainment of a certain aim, and created them mortal but sexless, or created them immortal, what would be the result? Why, if they were mortal but without the sex passion, and died without attaining the aim, God would have had to create new people to attain his aim. If they were immortal, let us grant that, though it would be more difficult for the same people to correct their mistakes and approach perfection than for those of another generation, they might attain that aim after many thousands of years, but then what use would they be afterwards? What could be done with them? It is best as it is. But perhaps you don't like that way of putting it. Perhaps you are an evolutionist. It comes to the same thing. The highest race of animals, the human race, in order to maintain itself in the struggle with other animals, ought to unite into one whole like a swarm of bees, and not breed continually. 
it should bring up sexless members as the bees do. That is, again, it should strive towards continence and not towards inflaming desire, to which the whole system of our life is now directed. He paused. The human race will cease. But can anyone doubt it, whatever his outlook on life may be? Why, it is as certain as death. According to all the teaching of the Church, the end of the world will come. And according to all the teaching of science, the same result is inevitable. Chapter 12 In our world, it is just the reverse. Even if a man does think of continence while he is a bachelor, once married, he is sure to think continence no longer necessary. You know those wedding tours, the seclusion into which, with their parents' consent, the young couple go, are nothing but licensed debauchery. But a moral law avenges itself when it is violated. Hard as I tried to make a success of my honeymoon, nothing came of it. It was horrid, shameful, and dull the whole time. And very soon I began also to experience a painful, oppressive feeling. That began very quickly. I think it was on the third or fourth day that I found my wife depressed. I began asking her the reason and embracing her, which in my view was all she could want, but she removed my arm and began to cry. What about? She could not say, but she felt sad and distressed. Probably her exhausted nerves suggested to her the truth as to the vileness of our relation, but she did not know how to express it. I began to question her, and she said something about feeling sad without her mother. It seemed to me that this was untrue, and I began comforting her without alluding to her mother. I did not understand that she was simply depressed and her mother was merely an excuse. But she immediately took offense because I had not mentioned her mother as though I did not believe her. She told me she saw that I did not love her. I reproached her with being capricious, and suddenly her face changed entirely, and instead of sadness, it expressed irritation, and with the most venomous words, she began accusing me of selfishness and cruelty. I gazed at her. Her whole face showed complete coldness and hostility, almost hatred. I remember how horror-struck I was when I saw this. How? What? I thought. Love is a union of souls, and instead of that, there is this? Impossible. This is not she. I tried to soften her, but encountered such an insuperable wall of cold, virulent hostility that before I had time to turn round, I too was seized with irritation, and we said a great many unpleasant things to one another. The impression of that first quarrel was dreadful. I call it a quarrel, but it was not a quarrel, but only the disclosure of the abyss that really existed between us. Amorousness was exhausted by the satisfaction of sensuality, and we were left confronting one another in our true relation, that is, as two egotists, quite alien to each other, who wished to get as much pleasure as possible, each from the other. I call what took place between us a quarrel but it was not a quarrel, only the consequence of the cessation of sensuality, 
revealing our real relations to one another. I did not understand that this cold and hostile relation was our normal state. I did not understand it because at first this hostile attitude was very soon concealed from us by a renewal of redistilled sensuality, that is, by love-making. I thought we had quarreled and made it up again and that it would not recur. But during that same first month of honeymoon, a period of satiety soon returned. We again ceased to need one another, and another quarrel supervened. This second quarrel struck me even more painfully than the first. So the first one was not an accident, but was bound to happen, and will happen again, I thought. I was all the more staggered by that second quarrel, because it arose from such an impossible pretext. It had something to do with money, which I never grudged, and could certainly not have grudged to my wife. I only remember that she gave the matter such a twist that some remark of mine appeared to be an expression of a desire on my part to dominate over her by means of money, to which I was supposed to assert an exclusive right. It was something impossibly stupid, mean, and not natural either to me or to her. I became exasperated and upbraided her with lack of consideration for me. She accused me of the same thing, and it all began again. In her words, and in the expression of her face and eyes, I again noticed the cruel, cold hostility that had so staggered me before. I had formerly quarreled with my brother, my friends, and my father, but there had never, I remember, been the special venomous malice which there was here. But after a while, this mutual hatred was screened by amorousness, that is, sensuality, and I still consoled myself with the thought that these two quarrels had been mistakes and could be remedied. But then a third and a fourth quarrel followed, and I realized that it was not accidental, but that it was bound to happen, and would happen so, and I was horrified at the prospect before me. At the same time, I was tormented by the terrible thought that I alone lived on such bad terms with my wife, so unlike what I had expected, whereas this did not happen between other married couples. I did not know then that it is our common fate, but that everybody imagines, just as I did, that it is their peculiar misfortune and everyone conceals this exceptional and shameful misfortune, not only from others, but even from himself, and does not acknowledge it to himself. It began during the first days, and continued all the time, ever increasing and growing more obdurate. In the depths of my soul, I felt from the first weeks that I was lost, that things had not turned out as I expected, that marriage was not only no happiness, but a very heavy burden. But like everybody else, I did not wish to acknowledge this to myself. I should not have acknowledged it even now, but for the end that followed. And I concealed it not only from others, but from myself, too. Now I am astonished that I failed to see my real position. It might have been seen from the fact that the quarrels began on pretexts, it was impossible to remember when they were over. Our reason was not quick enough to devise sufficient excuses for the animosity that always existed between us. 
but more striking still was the insufficiency of the excuses for our reconciliations. Sometimes there were words, explanations, even tears, but sometimes, oh, it is disgusting even now to think of it, after the most cruel words to one another came sudden silent glances, smiles, kisses, embraces. Faugh, how horrid! How is it I did not then see all the vileness of it? Chapter 13 Two fresh passengers entered and settled down on the farthest seats. He was silent while they were seating themselves, but as soon as they had settled down, continued, evidently not for a moment losing the thread of his idea. "'You know what is vilest about it,' he began, "'is that in theory love is something ideal and exalted. "'But in practice it is something abominable, swinish, "'which it is horrid and shameful to mention or remember. "'It is not for nothing that nature has made it disgusting and shameful. "'And if it is disgusting and shameful,' one must understand that it is so. But here, on the contrary, people pretend that what is disgusting and shameful is beautiful and lofty. What were the first symptoms of my love? Why, that I gave way to animal excesses, not only without shame, but being somehow even proud of the possibility of these physical excesses, and without in the least considering either her spiritual or even her physical life. I wondered what embittered us against one another, yet it was perfectly simple. That animosity was nothing but the protest of our human nature against the animal nature that overpowered it. I was surprised at our enmity to one another, yet it could not have been otherwise. That hatred was nothing but the mutual hatred of accomplices in a crime, both for the incitement to the crime and for the part taken in it. What was it but a crime when she, poor thing, became pregnant in the first month and our swinish connection continued? You think I am straying from my subject? Not at all. I am telling you how I killed my wife. They asked me at the trial with what and how I killed her. Fools. They thought I killed her with a knife on the 5th of October. It was not then I killed her, but much earlier. Just as they are all now killing. All. All. But with what? I asked. That is just what is so surprising, that nobody wants to see what is so clear and evident, what doctors ought to know and preach but are silent about. Yet the matter is very simple. Men and women are created like the animals so that physical love is followed by pregnancy and then by suckling, conditions under which physical love is bad for the woman and for her child. There are an equal number of men and women. What follows from this? It seems clear, and no great wisdom is needed to draw the conclusion that animals do, namely, the need of continence. But no— Science has been able to discover some kind of leukocytes that run about in the blood, and all sorts of useless nonsense, but cannot understand that. At least one does not hear of science teaching it. 
And so, a woman has only two ways out. One is to make a monster of herself. To destroy and go on destroying within herself to such degree as may be necessary the capacity of being a woman, that is, a mother, in order that a man may quietly and continuously get his enjoyment. The other way out, and it is not even a way out but a simple, coarse, and direct violation of the laws of nature, practiced in all so-called decent families, is that, contrary to her nature, the woman must be her husband's mistress even while she is pregnant or nursing, must be what not even an animal descends to, and for which her strength is insufficient. That is what causes nerve troubles and hysteria in our class, and among the peasants causes what they call being possessed by the devil, epilepsy. You will notice that no pure maidens are ever possessed, but only married women living with their husbands. That is so here, and it is just the same in Europe. All the hospitals for hysterical women are full of those who have violated nature's laws. The epileptics and Charcot's patients are complete wrecks, you know, but the world is full of half-crippled women. Just think of it. What a great work goes on within a woman when she conceives or when she is nursing an infant. That is growing which will continue us and replace us. And this sacred work is violated. By what? It is terrible to think of it. And they prate about the freedom and the rights of women. It is as if cannibals fattened their captives to be eaten and at the same time declared that they were concerned about their prisoners' rights and freedom. All this was new to me and startled me. What is one to do if that is so, I said. It means that one may love one's wife once in two years, yet men— Men must, he interrupted me. It is again those precious priests of science who have persuaded everybody of that— imbue a man with the idea that he requires vodka, tobacco, or opium, and all these things will be indispensable to him. It seems that God did not understand what was necessary, and therefore, omitting to consult those wizards, arranged things badly. You see, matters do not tally. They have decided that it is essential for a man to satisfy his desires— and the bearing and nursing of children comes and interferes with it and hinders the satisfaction of that need. What is one to do then? Consult the wizards. They will arrange it. And they have devised something. Oh, when will those wizards with their deceptions be dethroned? It is high time. It has come to such a point that people go mad and shoot themselves, and all because of this. How could it be otherwise? The animals seem to know that their progeny continue their race, and they keep to a certain law in this matter. Man alone neither knows it nor wishes to know, but is concerned only to get all the pleasure he can. And who is doing that? The Lord of Nature, man. Animals, you see, only come together at times when they are capable of producing progeny. But the filthy lord of nature is at it any time if only it pleases him. And as if that were not sufficient, he exalts this apish occupation into the most precious pearl of creation, 
into love. In the name of this love, that is, this filth, he destroys. What? Why, half the human race. All the women who might help the progress of mankind towards truth and goodness, he converts, for the sake of his pleasure, into enemies instead of helpmates. See what it is that everywhere impedes the forward movement of mankind. Women. And why are they what they are? Only because of that. Yes. Yes, he repeated several times, and began to move about, and to get out his cigarettes, and to smoke, evidently trying to calm himself. Chapter 14 I, too, lived like a pig of that sort, he continued in his former tone. The worst thing about it was that while living that horrid life, I imagined that, because I did not go after other women, I was living an honest family life, that I was a moral man, and in no way blameworthy, and if quarrels occurred, it was her fault, and resulted from her character. Of course the fault was not hers. She was like everybody else, like the majority of women. She had been brought up as the position of women in our society requires, and as therefore all women of the leisured classes without exception are brought up, and cannot help being brought up. People talk about some new kind of education for women. It is all empty words. Their education is exactly what it has to be in view of our unfeigned, real, general opinion about women. The education of women will always correspond to men's opinion about them. Don't we know how men regard women? Wein, Weib und Gesang, and what the poets say in their verses. Take all poetry, all pictures and sculpture, beginning with love poems, and the nude Venuses and Freenies, and you will see that woman is an instrument of enjoyment. She is so on the Truba and the Grechevka, and also at the court balls. And note the devil's cunning. If they are here for enjoyment and pleasure, let it be known that it is pleasure and that woman is a sweet morsel. But no, first the knights errant declare that they worship women, worship her, and yet regard her as an instrument of enjoyment. And now people assure us that they respect women. Some give up their places to her, pick up her handkerchief. Others acknowledge her right to occupy all positions and to take part in the government, and so on. They do all that, but their outlook on her remains the same. She is a means of enjoyment. Her body is a means of enjoyment. And she knows this. It is just as it is with slavery. Slavery, you know, is nothing else than the exploitation by some of the unwilling labor of many. Therefore, to get rid of slavery, it is necessary that people should not wish to profit by the forced labor of others, and should consider it a sin and a shame. But they go and abolish the external form of slavery, and arrange so that one can no longer buy and sell slaves, and they imagine and assure themselves that slavery no longer exists, and do not see or wish to see that it does, because people still want and consider it good and right to exploit the labor of others. And as long as they consider that good, there will always be people stronger or more cunning than others who will succeed in doing it. So it is with the emancipation of woman. 
The enslavement of women lies simply in the fact that people desire, and think it good, to avail themselves of her as a tool of enjoyment. Well, and they liberate woman, give her all sorts of rights equal to man, but continue to regard her as an instrument of enjoyment, and so educate her in childhood, and afterwards by public opinion. And there she is, still the same humiliated and depraved slave, and the man still a depraved slave owner. They emancipate women in universities and in law courts, but continue to regard her as an object of enjoyment. Teach her, as she is taught among us, to regard herself as such, and she will always remain an inferior being. Either with the help of those scoundrels, the doctors, she will prevent the conception of offspring, that is, will be a complete prostitute, lowering herself not to the level of an animal, but to the level of a thing. Or she will be what the majority of women are, mentally diseased, hysterical, unhappy, and lacking capacity for spiritual development. High schools and universities cannot alter that. It can only be changed by a change in men's outlook on women and women's way of regarding themselves. It will change only when woman regards virginity as the highest state, and does not, as at present, consider the highest state of a human being a shame and a disgrace. While that is not so, the ideal of every girl, whatever her education may be, will continue to be to attract as many men as possible, as many males as possible, so as to have the possibility of choosing. But the fact that one of them knows more mathematics and another can play the harp makes no difference. A woman is happy and attains all she can desire when she has bewitched a man. Therefore, the chief aim of a woman is to be able to bewitch him. So it has been and will be. So it is in her maiden life in our society, and so it continues to be in her married life. For a maiden, this is necessary in order to have a choice. For the married woman, in order to have power over her husband. The one thing that stops this, or at any rate suppresses it for a time, is children. And then only if the mother is not a monster, that is, if she nurses them herself. But here the doctors again come in. My wife, who wanted to nurse, and did nurse the four later children herself, happened to be unwell after the birth of her first child. And those doctors, who cynically undressed her and felt her all over, for which I had to thank them and pay them money, those dear doctors considered that she must not nurse the child, and that first time she was deprived of the only means which might have kept her from coquetry. We engaged a wet nurse, that is, we took advantage of the poverty, the need, and the ignorance of a woman, tempted her away from her own baby to ours, and in return gave her a fine headdress with gold lace. But that is not the point. The point is that during that time when my wife was free from pregnancy and from suckling, the feminine coquetry which had lain dormant within her manifested itself with particular force. And coinciding with this, the torments of jealousy rose up in me with a special force. They tortured me all my married life, 
as they cannot but torture all husbands who live with their wives as I did with mine, that is, immorally.'"